Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Broadcasted live. There are balls coming from all over the place. Left field, center field, right field. See, this this is the kind of thing, quite honestly, right now, that makes you want to see the Chicago Cubs team lose. Now, are you just saying you want to have fun, or do you really want to have fun? It'll be fun. Will the next person that sees anybody throw anything onto this field, point them out, or get them out of here? You don't live in Cleveland! You talking to me? You talking to me? That is the farthest thing in the universe from the truth. Hello, everyone. Live, it's the Dan Scott Show. And right there is your host, Dan Scott. And hi again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the show and the uh, Grumpy Old Broadcasters podcast. Radio show airs uh, live here in Abbeville and WZLA throughout Abbeville and Greenwood and uh, points in between. And of course, the uh, podcast available wherever you get podcasts from. We're happy to have you with us and and uh, look forward to uh, spending the next hour or so with you. You know, I always say uh, out of both optimism and belief that we have a good show for you, but today... We have a good show for you. Not only will Dave Glenn be here, as always, to uh, talk all things Atlantic Coast Conference Sports and the NCAA at large, but we have a very special interview today with uh, Major League Baseball player, Colorado Rockies infielder and outfielder Ian Desmond. And Desmond has a connection to a young friend of mine here in the upstate by the name of Ethan Brown. I'm just going to ask you to to stay tuned. We're going to flip-flop things. Dave Glenn is going to go first in the program today, and then we're going to spend a good deal of time with Ian Desmond to talk about not only his relationship to Ethan and why he has that relationship. Ethan has written a book called The Fight of My Life, which we're going to be referencing. But also, Ian Desmond made a pretty powerful social statement uh, back uh, last summer when he opted not to play in the 2020 season, not only because of the coronavirus, but because of other issues as well. So we're going to get into some of that with him, uh, but mostly going to be spending time talking about his connection to our mutual friend, young Ethan Brown of Liberty, South Carolina. That's coming up in the second half of the uh, show slash podcast today. So please, please uh, tune in and uh, make sure that you share the podcast once it drops. I'll tell you very quickly, the podcast portion is brought to you by our friends at Tadaro Pizza in uh, Greenville, uh, West Markley Street, just down from Floorfield at the West End where the Greenville Drive play. And uh, they are open for indoor and outdoor seating, and uh, they have been just phenomenal throughout this entire uh, coronavirus pandemic situation, continuing to find ways to do things safely and deliver the best pizza, literally and figuratively, that you've probably ever had. It's Bucket List Pizza if you've never been there. They have a location in Clemson as well on Sloan Street. It is right now only doing pickup and delivery. You can find out more at todaropizza.com, T-O-D-A-R-O pizza.com. You get the operating hours, the full menu there, and you also find them uh, on Facebook and on Twitter at Todaro Pizza Greenville. Give John a shout. 
Check them out. I promise you, you will not be sorry. All right, we need to take a break and come back and get ready to roll on this uh, action-packed edition of the Dan Scott Show and Grumpy Old Broadcasters. Dave Glenn, along with Tom Van Hoy, will be up with us when we come back. Stay right there. Welcome back to the show slash podcast. I am Dan Scott. Happy to have you with us as always. WZLA in Abbeville and Greenwood and everywhere at the Grumpy Old Broadcasters podcast site. So we're going to hop right into this. And as I mentioned, we're doing things a little bit backwards this week because Dave Glenn is going to join us first. And uh, my iPad just went nuts, so Dave doesn't get his intro music today. But uh, Colorado Rockies outfielder Ian Desmond will be joining us in the second segment of the show. So Dave is with us now to uh, talk all things uh, Atlantic Coast Conference and college basketball, college athletics uh, across the board. David, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Dan. Good to be with you and Tom again. Uh, I guess contractually there will be some kind of refund coming your way because your uh, your theme music did not fire as it was supposed to. So apologies there. Um, did you ever decide? I know today is your first uh, day as a professor. Are you gonna Are you gonna use that as kind of walk up music for your very first class <laughs> on site? <laughs> it's funny you'd ask that because I'm concerned enough about the technology for the classes I do in person at UNC Wilmington that I haven't gotten to the point of worrying about walk up music. Uh, it's it, a lot has changed since I was in school, Dan. So half our classes are going to be online, and that's one set of technical challenges. Uh, but they also prefer that you as a professor or instructor uh, record even the face-to-face classes. So that's one of my challenges later today is uh, making sure that that equipment is up and running properly and that I understand it and I probably need to volunteer to help run it. So uh, walk-up music is far down the list of my technical check box checking. Well, I, I would offer up Tom Van Hoy's assistance on that, oh, but, yeah. but no, we, no, but no, we no. all know what a disaster that would be. So, <laughs> you know, I thought I was going to be high price talent and somebody else would handle that. And that, that did not work out professionally. <laughs> and plus that would be a long commute for Tom. Yes, yes, it would. <laughs> well, that, that part of it, I, I think we can handle. The other part of it, uh, not so much. Uh, Dave Glenn uh, is the uh, the founder of ACCSports.com. Uh, he currently writes for TheAthletic.com and its subsite, Athletic Carolina. We talk ACC, we talk big picture uh, NCAA with him on a weekly basis. Uh, and, and Dave, there was a, a very startling note uh, on Saturday that I saw as, as Tom and I were preparing for our basketball broadcast in, in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee. This past week, it's the first time since 1961, 60 years, that Duke, North Carolina, nor Kentucky were ranked. That, that's just an incredible, incredible run, number one, 60 years, but to yeah. not have any of those teams ranked, that's crazy. It is, and I do think it's a reflection of something you and I have been talking about for over a decade at least, and that is the one-and-done nature of college basketball, especially for programs like those three. 
And most of the time, Mike Krzyzewski and Roy Williams and John Calipari find the next generation of players, that those prep All-Americans that are freshmen on any given team, and they blend them with the returning players and they avoid the bottoming out that you would think might happen more often when so many of your top players only stay on campus for one year, like a Zion Williamson or an R.J. Barrett at Duke, or back in the day, you know, Anthony Davis and so many others at Kentucky. Roy Williams hasn't had quite as many of those, but what is happening at all three schools is, A, they are, as they often do, relying heavily on freshmen, but B, there is no Zion Williamson this year. There is no super talent that just hits the ground running and automatically looks like one of the best players in America. There's still talent, but especially when your your freshmen are at the guard position, that's the case at Duke, that's the case at Carolina, uh, and to a degree at Kentucky. Um, Not everyone is going to be on a coach on the floor from day one at the guard position at the college level the way, you know, a Trey Jones seemed to show up ready for that mental, emotional, physical part of college basketball. And the reality is all three programs are going through the the downside of having rosters that turn over quickly. I just wouldn't stick a fork in any of them yet because what kinds of players have the potential to improve most from November to March? Usually the freshmen. And that's why I wouldn't give up on the Tar Heels. I wouldn't give up on the Blue Devils. I don't know the Wildcats' details as well as I do all the ACC teams. But I still believe Duke and Carolina are going to end up in the top 25. I still believe they're both going to make the NCAA tournament. Uh, But it's a tribute to all three programs, obviously, that they have been in the national spotlight so frequently for basically as long as all of us have been alive. Tom? Well, I was going to say, Dave, you mentioned the mental and the physical aspect of it. These guys are 18 years old coming in. You're talking, I'm talking about the one and dones now. And they're so used to having just great success. And then all of a sudden, they don't. Maybe they're not getting to a spot. Maybe their shot isn't open because they're playing against bigger and older, stronger players. And I would think that that aspect of it, as much as the physical aspect of it, would be one of the situations that they have to adjust to as the season goes on. There's no doubt about it, Tom, and add the COVID-19 pandemic layer of complication where you're not practicing as often, you don't have as many games, you have less time to build chemistry with your teammates, you have less time to understand what your coaches want from you. I mean, Caleb Love, the point guard at Carolina who's in his freshman year, has gone from truly atrocious for his opening weeks. I mean, he didn't understand what Roy Williams wanted out of a point guard. He was turning the ball over left and right. He was a heck of a shooter and scorer in high school. He was, you know, under 20% from three-point land, about as bad as it gets for a while. Little by little, and I think Roy Williams made the comment the other day, that the Tar Heels have now practiced 60 times, and they have had – what is it? Something like 15 games at this point at Carolina this season. Now you're not as you're not the same kind of freshman anymore. And sure enough, Caleb Love, who's about six foot four and really athletic, instead of kind of going into the lane and making a mental mistake, and he's had major turnover problems to go with those shooting problems, which leads to confidence problems, which leads to those exactly the sorts of emotional psychological challenges that you're talking about. 
in high school, if you had a bad game or two, you're so much more talented than the next team or the next opponent, you're going to get over it pretty quickly. It's not that easy in the ACC. So now Caleb Love is understanding what Roy Williams wants out of his point guards better. Some take longer than others. Kendall Marshall, now on Roy's staff, kind of got it early in his freshman year, right? A lot of others took longer, and it's just the way it goes sometimes. So now he's showing the talent. Now he's hitting some threes. Now he's actually driving into the lane, and sometimes at six foot four, dunking over some big guys. Now he's showing what he was supposed to be as that prep All-American, and it's not mere coincidence that the Tar Heels collectively are playing better and winning more big games at the exact same time that Caleb Love goes to some – you know, hollow shell of his prep All-American self. Uh, now, he's not an All-ACC player yet, but he's a good quality point guard who's gaining confidence, feeding the big men, playing defense, uh, being a little bit more unselfish. He was taking too many shots earlier, some of them bad shots. And all that part, all that is part of emotional maturity, film study, and understanding what you described as a pretty darn big jump from even the upper high school level to Atlantic Coast Conference basketball. Dave Glenn joining us to uh, talk ACC and, and uh, big picture NCAA sports, as he does every week here on the uh, Dan Scott Show and Grumpy Old Broadcasters podcast. This is episode 24, by the way. Dave, we've got about 10 minutes left uh, in this segment, so I, I want to transition to uh, a guy that you're very familiar with, and, and that is uh, Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski, who finds himself in, involved in a, in a bit of a controversy uh, which uh, he, he does from time to time, uh, but uh, he, he snapped at a, a student reporter after their loss to Louisville uh, over the weekend, and that has drawn some, uh, some criticism uh, from, uh, well, from all over, really. What, uh, what's your take on that? Because I know you've seen Coach K uh, at his best and his worst during your career. What, what's your take on that? Is the criticism he's getting justified? Has it gone over the top? What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? Well, I think some criticism is justified, right? Uh, for those who didn't see it, uh, Duke student reporter asked a question via Zoom. Turned out to be the first question he's ever asked Mike Krzyzewski in a post-game press conference. And as he tweeted later, he wasn't expecting that to happen as it became this national issue in the eyes of many. Uh, Coach K did not like a question soon after losing to Louisville. His team's 5-5 five and five out of the top 25. The pieces aren't fitting together. They're not even projected right now to be an NCAA tournament team. And Mike Krzyzewski is about an, as uber competitor a person as I've ever met. It's part of what makes him great. It's also part of what makes him kind of snarky at times. It actually, a long time ago, that uber intensity led to health problems that in the mid-90s caused him to step away from the basketball game, all the, the game of basketball. All of those are byproducts of intensity that can go over the top. Uh, you ask a great question, though. Did whatever criticism Coach K got go over the top? My answer to that is yes. And I think that's in part just because I've covered him since 1987. For those who didn't see it, Coach K's response about essentially, uh, you know, where do you go from here? What, what happens at Duke this upcoming week? The student reporter asked. And Coach K did not demean the young man, did not bite his head off figuratively, but he did give kind of a snarky answer. Hey, if you, what, what's your major at Duke? And eventually the young man says, econ. And Coach K says, tries to make this analogy. Well, if you just took one of the toughest econ tests you've ever taken and you walk out of that classroom 
and somebody says, where do you go from here? That's not going to be the best time to get that question or answer that question. Now, you and I know Mike Krzyzewski is a 70-plus-year-old Hall of Fame coach who's paid to know that there are going to be some tough questions after tough games, even losses. And, you know, a college-age econ student is not going to expect a microphone in front of him after leaving that classroom after that difficult test. Coach K could have easily said, we just played a a tough ball game, came up short, and my mind hasn't even wrapped around this week's plan. He could have just said that. Instead, he used that analogy, which was not a perfect analogy for the reasons I just described. And those who hate Duke and those who hate Coach K kind of, you know, used it as a chance to attack him as some kind of demonic figure uh, and get out their, their Duke hatred. When in reality, Dan, you and I have been around a long time. If, if you can't, ha- if your skin, your thickness level of your skin can't handle that semi-unpleasant exchange, you might want to find a different industry. Because on a 10-point bullying scale, I've seen Coach K at a 9.5 back in the late 1980s when he berated Duke Chronicle student newspaper reporters so badly and someone had secretly recorded the tirade when he went after the student newspapers. He's lucky the internet did not exist in the late 80s because you want to talk about a 10-bell fire, that would have been it. This was Coach K at far less than his best. I'm not giving him a passing grade for what he said. He easily could have dodged the question, which is his right, without making it personal with a young reporter who frankly asked a valid question. Coach, you're five and five. Where do you go from here? I mean, that's a that kid deserves an A plus journalism 101. Of course, that's a fair question. Of course, it's a reasonable question. So I, I do support the young man um, and wish him well and hope he doesn't back off uh, simply because a Hall of Fame coach went after him a little bit, but at the same time, holy cow, I think we need some perspective here. And I've seen bullying. I've seen extreme behavior and comments from coaches, including Mike Krzyzewski. And this was, uh, what do they use at the fire department? Is it five bells, the largest fire? This was a two bell fire. And those treating it like a five bell fire, I think just wake up looking for reasons to take shots at Duke or Mike Krzyzewski. Do you remember the first question you asked to a coach? And have you ever been on the receiving end of something like that? I I remember at the beginning of my relationship with the legendary UNC coach, Dean Smith, he did not like me a whole lot. Uh, Now, remember, this was before the Internet. So he's reading the pages of the Durham Herald Sun newspaper, the Chapel Hill newspaper, the Daily Tar Heel student newspaper, and he didn't like some of the things that I had written. Again, pre-internet. So, I mean, he literally had clip files mm-hmm. on everyone from what John Feinstein was writing about him personally or the Tar Heels or somebody like me at 20 years old or 21 years old. Coach Smith, though, would never, ever make it personal. So if you asked what he thought was an inappropriate question, or if he remembered what you wrote the day before or the week before, he would say things like, well, those who know basketball understand that even though my veteran point (laughs) guard, King Rice, is not our leading scorer, 
Uh, those who know basketball understand how he helps this team with defense and leadership and on and on and on. So I'm sitting there thinking, I'm the only one who's written anything critical about King Rice in the past couple of weeks. He is clearly talking to me. He is trying to be polite about it. But to his credit, he's trying to make a point in defense of his player as a Hall of Fame coach who has forgot, had at that point forgotten more basketball than I certainly knew at the age of 20 or 21. Uh, so that was interesting. And I've had run-ins with Jimbo Fisher when he was at Florida State, Bobby Petrino when he was at Louisville. You know, Seth Greenberg at Virginia Tech didn't like a question that I asked him uh, in what turned out to be. I asked him a where does he go from here question after what turned out to be his last game as the head coach at Virginia Tech. And it was a perfectly valid question, just like this young man at Duke. You know, coach, there's a debate out there about whether you have been too much of a bubble coach. You haven't been able to take the Hokies to the next level. There's a debate about out there whether you deserve more time. When you have a personal relationship with a coach, nine times out of 10, they will thank you for asking that question. And the reason is, if they start defending themselves and it's not in response to a question, they look defensive. They come across as paranoid. If it's in response to a question, again, a valid question that is kind of a gift if you take it the right way, of course you should defend your track record and explain why you deserve more time as the Hokies head coach. Uh, so I can't say that I've, you know, I, I had a run in with Billy Packer one time on live radio. So I've, I've had, you know, I, after 30 some years, you're going to have a handful, but I wouldn't get into double digits in terms of the truly sensitive moments. And I've even had some occasional moments with Coach K. You know, he didn't like how I talked about the Grayson Allen problem when he was tripping people on purpose. When Coach mm -hmm. K decided that that was a media creation, I mean, Here's, a, here's an idea, Coach, I said on live radio. If you really think that problem is primarily because of the media and not primarily because your player is tripping people on purpose, it's time to reevaluate things. So he doesn't like being called out that way. But I, I, you, know, you guys know me well. I'm not afraid of anybody. And if I have a, a point of view that I can back up, I'm not in the business of cheap shots. But if Duke is going to say something outrageous, as outrageous as it's the media's fault, yeah. rather than my guy needs to stop tripping people on purpose, I'm going to call that out every time, man. I'm from Philly. I've got a BS detector, and you're not going to pass that <laughs> stuff by me, whether you're a Hall of Fame coach or anybody else. Dave, very quickly, because we've got to wrap up, but Tom and I have talked about this before. Have you ever had a coach ask you to ask him a certain question in a press conference <laughs> setting and then use you as the whipping boy for asking said question? <laughs> yes uh -huh, to the first part, no to the second part. I I've had people ask, you know, man, I, I really hope somebody asks me about this player who, who maybe was down on himself and, and the coach just wanted a reason to pump this guy's tires. And, and I didn't think there was anything wrong. I might have asked that question anyway. The second part is really interesting, though. I, <laughs> that's almost full-scale theater at that point where it's a planted question and he comes after you. And yet, of course, in that scenario, you deep down inside know that to whatever degree he comes after you, that's just a circus sideshow. That's, that's pretty cool stuff. I hope you include that in your book. Yeah, that's something, Tom, you, you and I have talked about. Uh, I think you've actually experienced that, haven't you? 
Uh, yeah, a time or two uh, over the years. So <laughs> it's, an inter- it's an interesting scenario. We all run into those type of things. And, uh, you know, you just kind of deal with it as it comes your way and in the way you see fit, I guess. These sorts of topics are as fun as anything we could dissect when it comes to ACC basketball or its power rankings or anything else. UVA and Florida State are the best teams in this league, Dan. Carolina's getting better, and it's still a deep league, even if it doesn't have a lot of great teams at the top. Seems to be the recurring theme week in and week out. Dave, tell everybody how they can follow what you do. On Twitter, we're at David Glenn Show. In the classroom, we're at UNC Wilmington now. Uh, and online, accsports.com is that site we created back in the mid-90s. And as Dan kindly mentioned, theathletic.com and The Athletic Carolina are great partners as well. All right, good stuff. We appreciate it. As always, we'll talk to you next week. That's Dave Glenn. Stay tuned. Colorado Rockies uh, infielder, outfielder Ian Desmond will join us on the other side as the show and the Grumpy Old Broadcasters podcast continues in just a moment. All right, we are back. Our thanks to Dave Glenn of accsports.com and theathletic.com for his usual fantastic outlook on things. And uh, he'll be back with us again next week. Tom Van Hoy had to uh, check out. So you've got me and you've got a very special guest, and uh, it's going to be mostly uh, about him. Ian Desmond is joining us. He is uh, an infielder, outfielder for the Colorado Rockies. Uh, This guy has had just a phenomenal Major League Baseball career, which we could get into and and spend an incredible amount of time talking about that. But uh, he's joining us from Florida today, where he resides in the offseason. And uh, we're going to talk about a mutual friend of ours, a young man named uh, Ethan Brown from up here in the upstate of South Carolina who uh, has just been an incredible uh, inspiration to so many different people. Uh, Ian, first of all, welcome to the show and the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for having me, Dan. And uh, you're right. Ethan is quite the inspiration, isn't he? He, he is. Uh, let's, let, let's get this out of the way first. Uh, you're a, obviously a very, very intelligent young man to uh, spend your winters in Florida and, and not in Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's one thing for sure about me. I'm a Florida boy through and through. If it gets below 65, I'm uh, I'm in panic mode. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Ethan. And for those who don't know, uh, Ethan has written a book called uh, The Fight of My Life, uh, Persevering Through Neurofibromatosis. And neurofibromatosis is um, a neurological disease, and I could get into a lot of technical terms about it, but in effect, it causes tumors on the brain, and he has, as a result of this, lost his hearing, and it's something he's been battling with ever since I've known him. Um, First of all, Ian, what's your connection, before you even talk about Ethan, what's your connection to neurofibromatosis? Yeah, I mean, my connection is Ethan, actually. Um, You know, so it all kind of started back in 2011, 2012. Um, We all kind of know the trajectory of social media and, you know, capitalization on, you know, the social platforms. Uh, So I was a young professional baseball player. Um, I had an agent who was pushing me to, you know, get into the social media world and, 
you know, I was pretty reluctant at the time. Um, it wasn't really for me. I felt like, you know, I didn't have time for anything other than playing baseball. So he hired a company to run a social media platform for me, uh, Twitter actually. And after about two weeks of this person pretending to be me, I was like, you know, this just isn't going to work. Doesn't sound anything like me. As reluctant as I was, I was like, I'm taking it over. And it wasn't long after that, that uh, I saw a prayer request come up from a young guy saying that he had a brain surgery coming up and that, you know, he needed some prayers. And, you know, I didn't really know exactly what I was doing up to this point. I wasn't really in like the responding to tweets, you know, comfort level. But I said, hey, you know what? I'll pray for you, you know, and I was with Washington at the time and he was obviously a Braves fan because that's proximity and, you know, being rivals, I think he was like, Hey, who the heck is this guy? You know? And we, you know, since that time we've, uh, we've become really good friends. So it's an example of social media being used for good rather than evil, so to speak, because we see so much bad that comes out of social media, but it's like anything else. Uh, it's a tool and how you use it obviously is going to, to depend or is going to dictate what comes out of it. And you've obviously decided to use your platform for good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and trust me, I've had my share of, you know, rebuttals, I guess you could say, but you know, there, there has been a lot of, you know, positive experience for me through social media. I've got some really good friends and fans you know, that I've been able to interact with over the years. And, you know, this relationship that I've built with Ethan, you know, really started from that one tweet and has become, you know, almost like he's like a little brother to me. Let's delve into that a little bit. How did it go from responding to a single tweet to the kind of relationship that you have with him now? I mean, we could we could get into to everything that that you have done uh, for and, and with that young man and how close you've become, but how did it get from point A to point B? I mean, I think it's really in part to Ethan's outgoingness. You know, he's, he's not an overly shy kid. Um, you know, he's, he's got a great energy and aura about him that draws people in. He definitely draw me in or drew me in. But I, I think, you know, it started off with an exchange over Twitter and then that grew and grew you know, through social media and then, you know, exchanging of phone numbers and texting. Uh, but what a funny story that I tell a lot of people, and I think you'll get a kick out of it, um, is that, you know, so I ended up playing a game in Atlanta. I invited Ethan and his family to come to a game. You know, one of the perks of being a professional athlete is you can leave, you know, tickets for friends and family, and you can invite them down into the tunnels after games and have that close interaction. And, so, you know, I was young and I was dedicated and, and, you know, selfish, to be honest. And, you know, I had Ethan down, Ethan and his family down in the tunnel. And after the game, you know, I was typically one of the last people out. And, you know, so, so Rick and Jan and Ethan are standing down in the tunnel, you know, hour, I, don't, I would say an hour after the game, they had been waiting down there. And in Atlanta, you know, it's not cold. It wasn't cold. Um, and so I come out to meet Ethan, and this is at the time Ethan could walk, talk, stand. You know, he was he he was still quite put together, and um, that's probably not the best way to say it. But he, you know, he was he was more than able to stand there and be there. And uh, so Ethan reaches out his hand, you know, after a bit of time, and he says, "Hey, you want you ever felt a tumor before?" 
And I said, no, I've never felt a tumor before. You know, I mean, I don't know many people that haven't that have, you know, and so he puts his hand out and I touch his tumor on his hand and he goes, ah, and goes into a full <laughs> panic. Like I just, you know, shot him with a BB gun. And, and at that moment, obviously he was kidding, but at that moment I knew that, Hey, this kid is special and we are going to be friends for a long time because that is absolutely something that I would do. And I encourage anybody that has a tumor to play that joke on somebody. I mean, because it's really, it was an icebreaker, you know, and it was, it was our first time meeting in person and, you know, he was lighthearted and, you know, he maintains that same sense of humor to this day. It, it takes all the uncomfortableness out of the situation, allows you to get past it and, and have that real relationship, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was at that moment, it wasn't, you know, a professional athlete and a kid with neurofibromatosis. It was two guys just being guys. And, you know, it, it was a special moment and it was, a, it was funny, but it was really just a testament to his character and, you know, it was just a great moment. Ian Desmond joining us here on uh, the Dan Scott Show and Grumpy Old Broadcasters, episode 24. We're talking about a mutual friend of ours, a young man by the name of Ethan Brown, who's written a book called The Fight of My Life, Persevering Through uh, Neurofibromatosis. And uh, for those who don't know, the, the very first time I met Ethan, we were doing a radio broadcast uh, that we that we typically did on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving at a local grocery store here in, in the Clemson, South Carolina area, where we raised money, had people bring in canned food, canned goods to take to the local food bank. And we would deep fry turkeys and give away deep fry turkey sandwiches for the people who came in and, and had a great time, did it for years. And, and just uh, the people in this area just responded to it like crazy. Well, somebody said, there's this kid that you need to meet and explain to me uh, what was going on with him, and, and he was just at the beginning of this journey. I think he had just gotten his first first tumors, and he was going, I think, to Duke University, and they were talking about the surgery and everything. Hadn't even really affected his hearing that much yet. So we did this radio interview. They brought him down, and, and again, I had no idea who he was, and, and I think the interview might have been seven minutes, Ian. Mm -hmm. By the time that seven-minute interview was up, I had promised him on the air that – if he got well and could be back on the football field the next year, that we would open our Game of the Week broadcast at the radio station I was doing, working with at the time at his school, which was lousy in football, and, and right. nobody ever broadcasted from there. But that's, that's the kind of captivating personality this young man had. I had never knew him, and seven minutes later I was making a promise that we ultimately kept. He actually did get yeah. on the field the the next fall which was just yeah. a, a fantastic testament to who he is yeah and, and you know that's ethan where you know in that deal you know he negotiated something that he knew would benefit other people besides himself you know he's a very selfless human being he's always putting other people's needs first no matter how down and out or emotionally spent that he is he always 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 is looking out for the emotional well-being and the physical well-being of the people around them. And, you know, it's easy to tell, you know, it's easy to tell his heart. There's no question about it. Um, so you have known him through this, pretty much this entire journey with him and seen what this disease has done to him. Uh, right now, he, he'll never hear again. For At one juncture, he, he could hear with the aid of a cochlear implant, but one of the surgeries that he had to have 
robbed him of that ability, so he's completely deaf now and, and is having all sorts of other uh, neurological issues. You've seen him throughout this entire process, Ian. What have you seen from him, even as this disease has robbed him of a lot of his bodily function? How has his soul and spirit remained from your standpoint? I mean, you know, I, I also tell people this, you know, if, if you stole my phone and went through the text messages from Ethan Brown over the last, I don't know, it's probably been nine years about, it's about nine years, our relationship now, um, you would never know. You would never know that anything was impacting him. You know, he just, he's, he's as resilient and as caring and as loving today as he was at the very beginning of this, as are his parents. You know, so throughout this journey, I've, you know, I started with, I started, you know, my entrance into the neurofibromatosis and the, the relationship with the Children's Tumor Foundation all started with Ethan. And it's grown since then immensely. I mean, I've, I've met, I would say, thousands of people that have been impacted by neurofibromatosis since then. And it's a testament to Ethan and, and, and his relationship with the Children's Tumor Foundation. He once again said, hey, Ian, I want you to meet these people. But every person with neurofibromatosis and every family member that is impacted by it, I, I tell them, it's, yes, you have a gene that produces neurofibromatosis in your body. But I think when you get that gene, you also get this other gene, this other gene that, to, that will help you fight, this other gene that will keep you resilient, the other gene that will, you know, just give you this resolve that is unmatched. And I don't think there's any science that can say it, but every person I've ever met with neurofibromatosis has the same outlook, that they're just going to fight like a dog. How has this relationship changed you? Because you referenced yourself. These were your words when we started. You were a young ball player when you met him, and you called yourself something of a selfish ball player. How has this relationship changed you over these last eight or nine years? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what comes to my head at the moment is, you know, I was that kid where, you know, it's about me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the last one out of the clubhouse, you know, regardless if there's somebody out there waiting for me. You know, it was I was very self-driven, self-focused. I had a, a dream in my life and I was going to accomplish that dream and nothing was going to stand in my way. You know, and now it's, you know, now I have meet and greets with fans uh, or I have meet and greets with, with families with neurofibromatosis, you know, in, in, a, in visiting cities before games, after games. Uh, you know, we, we've been doing Zoom, uh, Zoom time with, with patients with neurofibromatosis. Um, you know, it's, it's just broadened my horizons and showed me that there's more to the world and more to life than just getting a hit in the bottom of the ninth. And it's interesting because in order to become a world-class athlete and anybody who has had the longevity in Major League Baseball that you've had can be qualified as a world-class athlete, you have to have that that inner drive you were talking about. And whether it manifests itself as selfishness or not probably is another debate for another time. But it seems like the way God works, there's always something that comes along that gives you some perspective on things. And it sounds like Ethan was your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's he, so in his book, he talks about these red and black bracelets that were given to him at the beginning of this whole journey from, I think it was his football team or, you know, an organization. I think it was his football team. 
you know, and so he gave me in our, in our first meeting, one of these red and black, you know, I've got one on now. This is for another kid, but uh, one of these, you know, and I, right. I would work every, before every at bat in the on deck circle, I would buckle my batting gloves and I would take this and slide it over the band of my batting glove. You know, and it's funny because I'm thinking about it now. I had a number 20 on my batting glove and I'm, you know, that's like an indication of, okay, number 20, look at yourself, you know, way to go. You made it to the big leagues. You got your number on your, you know, glove. And then, you know, where I, where kind of Ethan brought me to was covering up that number that I cared so much about having put on there and covering it with the, you know, $1 rubber band and that rubber band signifying so much more than, you know, what I had worked for my whole life. And it was, Hey, if this kid can fight and he can go after his dreams and goals and try to accomplish, you know, the unaccomplishable, which is overcoming this disorder, then I can have this at bat. You know, this at bat doesn't carry that much weight once I, which I once thought it did. What did you think when he first floated the idea that he wanted to write a book? I mean, there's really nothing. I mean, so there's, so before that, so the second, sorry, if you, if you have time, we'll get oh, yeah, to that. I've, I've got plenty of time. Go. So Ethan comes to, he comes to another Braves game. You know, and he's sitting down uh, in a wheelchair on the field for batting practice. And he's looking at my tattoos. And I said, hey, man, you're not tough enough to get a tattoo. You know, just messing with him because I do know that he is absolutely tough enough. And so he's like, he's like, yeah, right. You know, I, have you ever had a catheter put in before? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's valid point. And I said, hey, if, you're, if your parents will allow you to get a tattoo, I'll get a tattoo with you. And similar to your story where if you get back on that football field, I'll come, I'll come, you know, broadcast your game. Well, time goes on. And he says, hey, my parents said I can get a tattoo. So we started exchanging tattoo ideas, right? And it wasn't long until, you know, I've got a tattoo on my arm, a matching tattoo with Ethan that says NNF. It's got a couple puzzle pieces uh, and and a couple bats for me. And Ethan's a big hunter, so we put the deer antlers on there. Yeah. Absolutely, right it's on the cover. Right there on, on the, the cover, cover of the book. book. Yep. So I know that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. <laughs> so when he said he was going to write a book, you know, to me that was just like, okay, when's the book coming out? And you know, for him to be going through all the stuff that he's going through for his family, he just finds a way. You know, he found a way to, to, to produce this book. And you know, I know the fruit of this book is going to impact a lot of people, and it's going to leave the legacy that he deserves. He's the kind of guy that makes you uh, put up or shut up, doesn't he? There's just something about his personality. Absolutely, I think you know, as a young kid playing football and sports. You know, we, we would call them dogs. You know, you were you were a dog. You were either a dog or you weren't, you know. And I didn't know Ethan as a football player. I didn't know him as a, you know, 14-year-old, 15-year-old kid. But I guarantee you that Ethan's got some dog in him. We're visiting with uh, Ian Desmond, uh, who uh, Ethan Brown affectionately calls uh, Desi. And, uh, by the way, you know, he has been – very open with his relationship with you on his social media uh, ever since you guys have become friends and he'll just randomly tweet or post on Facebook, uh, Desi texted me today this, Desi texted me that, and I, I get the idea that you're okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like like I said, I mean, there's, I, there's not a person in my phone that I text more than Ethan. 
including my wife. I mean, we talk almost daily. Um, you know, sometimes it's more in depth than others. Sometimes he sends me dumb jokes that I chuckle at, but you know, he's just, you know, a little brother, you know, at this point, he literally is like family to me. So I have no, I mean, at this point we've sent out so many tweets and Facebook or Instagram posts about each other and talked about each other so much. I mean, there's not really many people that follow me that don't know my relationship with Ethan. So there was no question then that you were going to be the guy he asked to write the forward for this book. And, and obviously you graciously accepted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just like just in the same exact vein that I put the tattoo on my body, it's, it's just, he's my boy, you know I mean? It's that's he's he's family and you know, whatever he asked me to do, I'd be more than happy to do it. So what, what do you hope the bigger picture is out of this relationship that that you and Ethan ha- have forged. What, what what do you hope comes out of this? Not just between the two of you, but beyond that. Uh you know, I think it's ever changing. I think when I first initially responded to him on social media, it was a professional baseball player making an impact on a kid. That's how it started, and now you've got this kid making an impact on me, the professional athlete, and on so many other people. You know, I think, you know, in a day and age where, you know, everyone hates social media and everyone, you know, can't control their tongue and, you know, it's it's often fuel on the fire. You know, one thing I do feel is that, you know, good things, like you said at the beginning, can come through social media. And I think Ethan and I's relationship is a testament to that. I think that's one thing that, you know, positive can come from social media. If you use it right, if you have a good heart, I think that can be a positive. Um, You know, I think that Ethan has led me to a relationship with the Children's Tumor Foundation. And through Ethan, I've been able to make, you know, fantastic relationships and make an impact on a lot of people's lives and bring joy to people. Uh, I think Ethan's book uh, is going to do the same because neurofibromatosis is a scary, scary thing. Mm-hmm. And he offers insights in this book that people just finding out what neurofibromatosis is, it's a great way for you to understand it a little bit more, to, to see the impacts it has on family and friends and and and, the, and, and Ethan and, and the, the, um, the people going through it. It, it sounds... Ian, as we, we get close to wrapping up here, that, that your, your transformation because of relationship with, with Ethan kind of jives with a, a favorite saying that a college baseball coach that, that I'm very close to uh, says time and time again uh, around here. He, he says, baseball is what I do. It's not who I am. And I get the idea that that your view on that has changed maybe since your relationship with Ethan Brown. Absolutely. And, you know, I got goosebumps thinking about that because, you know, who would have known, you know, who would have known? And it all started, you know, just based on a little bit of vulnerability, you know, vulnerability on Ethan's behalf to put out a request. You know, it's not easy to ask for help. It's not easy to ask for prayers. And he did. And a little bit of vulnerability on my behalf, reaching out, you know, and saying, hey, you know, I'll pray for you, buddy. You know, we got this. He hates when I say buddy, so I don't know why I said that, but I'll pray for you, man. 
Well, if I knew he hated it, I'd probably call him buddy every chance I got just to, that, that little locker room stick if I could. Hey, uh, before we let you, before we let you go, uh, how about how about the relationship uh, between uh, your family and him and his family? I, I mean, it's not just the two of you, right? No, I mean, so I didn't have any. Uh, I might have had. I, I might have been having my first son when when we met, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I've got five kids now. So they've been a part of every, every bit of it, you know, um, you know, I was able to go on a hunt with Ethan and spend some time with his family and his family has obviously rooted me on, you know, from day one. And I've been able to kind of be there for them in certain aspects, you know, they have, they have an unbelievable, you know, circle of people around them that love and support them. And I'm just a very, very, very small part of that. There are absolutely people that are more invested in, in, you know, their emotional state than I am, but, you know, to, to be able to be a friend to them and for them to be a friend to me and my family and to hear Jan say, Hey, Desi, you know, we're praying for you. We're praying for those kids. You know, I believe that. And I know that to be true. And and my family has been a recipient of those prayers uh, for a long time. And we are extremely grateful. We've also, as parents, Chelsea and I, my wife have got to see the example that what, a, what, you know, unconditional love, looks like. And it absolutely sharpens us. Ethan and I, you know, since the beginning have said our iron sharpens iron, like Mm -hmm. one man sharpens another. And there is absolutely no doubt that we've sharpened each other. Our families have sharpened each other. And and we try to be an inspiration to those other people that are out there trying to sharpen other people. Yeah. As we wrap it up, uh, Ian, um, I am not ashamed to say this at all unabashedly uh, uh, proud to, to say that, that I'm a Christian. And one of the, the things my wife has always said, she's gone on several mission trips to other countries. Uh, and I've been able to go on one with her, but she's been to the Dominican Republic. She's been to Mexico two or three times. And, and she says, you know, the intent, you always go humanly. It's something you can't help. The intent is you always go expecting that you're going to be a blessing to somebody. And it turns out, the other way around, that those people and that experience has been a blessing to her. And it sounds like, again, where maybe you thought, and, and you have been, there's no question about it, you've been a blessing to Ian and his family, but it sounds like it's probably worked even more the other way that that, that young man has been a blessing to Ian Desmond. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful to Ethan to the, you know, for allowing me to be a part of his life and to, you know, walk alongside of him and his family um, and then all the other families with children, with the Children's Sooner Foundation, you know, they all thank me. You know, they say, Ian, thank you so much for all that you do. And it's almost impossible for me not to say, no, thank you. You know, thank you for being the example for me and my wife. Thank you for showing me what unconditional love looks like and what resilience, you know, looks like. And it's the same thing with those people that you're talking about, you know, that your wife is interacting with on her mission trips. You know, it's not thank me, it's thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing when you get that perspective, how much your life can change. Ian, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to spend some time with us today. I want to thank uh, Ethan's father, Rick, for kind of playing liaison to, to help set this up. And and hopefully we'll be able to, to get together again sometime in the near future and actually talk a little bit of baseball. Yeah, hey, and I got to say, you know, if you don't mind, you know, I, I want to plug the book for yeah. one second. Now, this This is a great book. And, and this, whether you have a relationship with anybody with NF or not, this is a great read. And 
25% of the, uh, there's a percentage, I think it's 25% of the proceeds are going to the Children's Tumor Foundation. You know, and this is a phenomenal organization that absolutely will use this money for good. So if for no other reason, you know, make the donation, you know, so it will be going to some a good organization. It's a good book and you will get something out of it. You know, take it from someone who's not a reader by any stretch of the imagination. This is a good book. Yeah, and I want to show you something as we close here. Um, and you and I are probably the only ones who will see this. But the, the disease ha- has robbed Ethan of a lot of his ability to do a lot of different things. But look at this. I don't know if you can see this or not. He scratched out his autograph, EB, on the inside of this book. Isn't that phenomenal? He did the same thing for you. How about that? that that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And that that's to just to do that's a lot harder than you think. So, you know, that's a million words right there. Yeah, I've never been much of an autograph collector. I've got a few. That's my favorite, without question. And I've got, I've only got a handful myself. Not even a handful. I've probably got two. You know, and they're both Ethan's. <laughs> Outstanding, Ian. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it greatly. All right, we'll be back to close up shop right after this. I welcome back to the show podcast. Uh, just enough time to kind of wrap things up. Uh, th- this has been a good one. I told you I always say that, but I believe it more on this one simply because of not only the quality of what we get every time out with Dave Glenn, but the opportunity to step outside of some of the things we we get caught up in so much, and and be able to put life into perspective a little bit, and and for someone who's accomplished what Ian Desmond has accomplished in his Major League Baseball career to have a young man by the name of Ethan Brown uh, affect him the way he has and the way he's affected so many people. Uh, I I thought that um, today's probably one of the best ones that we've ever done simply because of that message that we were able to get across. Listen, the uh, podcast is brought to you again by Todaro Pizza, T-O-D-A-R-O Pizza.com. Check them out on the web. You can find out everything there is to know about them there and continue to thank John for uh, his support of what we are doing. Thank those of you who are listening to us in Abbeville on WZLA and uh, on the Internet there uh, as we air from 5 to 6 p.m. every Monday, Abbeville and Greenwood and and all of those areas. And uh, just continue to support us, share this uh, program, share this podcast, this one especially, but share it all the time and help us grow. Folks, we need growth. We need more people listening to what we do because we think that it's going to be worth their time. And and the podcast market, the radio market is so competitive. We need you to help us share this and push it out and go uh, as far as we can go with it. And uh, just a a note as we close things out uh, personally to uh, Ethan, I know Physically, you can't hear what I'm saying, but I know that in your heart you can hear what I'm saying. I love you, man. You and your family are just top-notch people. Keep fighting, keep grinding, and keep giving the glory to God. We'll see you again next time. Until then, I'm Dan Scott saying God bless you and so long, everybody.